this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 121, recording on Friday, August 28th. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky, and we're coming to you from BookRiot.com. We almost got the blahs today. So blah. I'm like over summer. I'm just done. <laughs> There's a little hint of chill on oh, the there air too. Yeah, here. Too today and it's glorious but i just want to like fling the windows open and pick up a book and not do things i'm responsible for doing yeah it's uh it's late august it's not hot but you can definitely feel the summer is long in the tooth i think we're ready to yes get towards fall and like you'll talk about this week's new books but also like the book industry itself was like ready for fall cuz like the new books coming out next week are bananas they are and it's like labor day is late this year and yeah. so the fall book season is sort of kicking off at a strange time but i've got this since for all the books with liberty i've got this running list of like things that i need to read by certain weeks so that i can talk about them on the show <laughs> on certain weeks and there are so many it's like this year has just been so great for books and it's just about to get even better I mean, just a, just as a hint, um, and you probably have way more, but like the Franzen comes out next week. Not you know that, mm -hmm. that we're ourselves, but that's a big book. Uh, the new Ferrante, the last of the Neapolitan novels, comes out on the first. This fantasy novel that I am bonkers about called Sorcerer to the Crown. Oh by yeah, Zen Cho we'll, we'll hear about. I need week. to hear about that next week too. Uh, mm -hmm. There's something else uh, I can't remember. Girl waits with gun. Is yes, out next that week? comes out. The, uh, Chuck Wendig's Star Wars book comes out next week, which I am geeking out about just because it's like, you know, an uh, amuse-bouche for The Force Awakens coming out later in the in the summer. So really getting off to a to a rip-roaring start here. Um, let's get to our first sponsor, Scribd. Scribd is back. And so you may have heard some changes to Scribd, and we'll get to that in a second. But let's talk about what Scribd is. Uh, it's the subscription book service to get access to 1 million books and audiobooks. So it's a book subscription service for hardcore readers. It has audiobooks, comics, and ebooks. Head over to scribd.com slash bookwrite to get started with a free month's trial. It has books from big publishers, Indie Presses, HarperCollins, Random House, McSweeney's, a bunch of places you've heard of, a bunch of places you haven't that still publish books that you have heard of. Unlimited reading and access to ebooks, including some of the biggest new releases. They do a great job of getting you to books that you might not know about. Like it's one thing if you've heard about a book and you type it in and you're like, okay, they have it or they don't. Mm -hmm. But sometimes you need to find sort of uh, sideways things to look for. They've got hundreds of collections created by their team of editors. And as you will read, they'll tailor the recommendations for you based on the books that you've loved. So that's that's how it works. They got comics, audiobooks, and ebooks. Now there has been a change, and so you can't gloss over this. Um, from now on, there's uh, starting in late September, I should say. It's no longer an unlimited audiobook service. Um, they've made a change recently. They made an announcement. If you go to Scribd.com right now, there's a pop-up that appears um, that sort of explains what's going on. But your $8.99 monthly subscription still gets you unlimited comics and eBooks, but it no longer gets you unlimited audiobooks. You get one credit for an audiobook built into your subscription. And if you want to use more through Scribd, you pay as you go. 
for additional credit. So that's that's a change. Um, and I think they just are figuring out what's sustainable. Um, but you should know that going in. That's different than the reads we've done before. Uh, that's a change. So no longer unlimited, but you do get one built in. Uh, and you know how expensive audiobooks are. So yeah, eight ninety nine for one is still a it's still a good deal. Plus unlimited ebooks and comics yeah. reading. It's still a really great value proposition. Yeah, um, but should should know that for longtime Scribd users who have listened to the show, I know a lot of you have signed up through Scribd uh, from us and you've heard about it and passed it on. So you might you know take that into account as you're continuing or you sign up. But if you're new to Scribd, like nine bucks a month, still get a great all uh, inclusive um, in terms of format reading experience as a subscription. So try it out. Go to scribd.com slash book riot and get started today. All right. We got a bunch of, uh, we have, we do a bunch of stuff and a bunch of good, like sort of fun, yeah. light things, because that's where we are right now. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> um, this first one just came across our desks this morning and it's, I think this is really great and creative. It's called judgy. Uh, the URL is play judgy, J U D G E Y. And the idea is you judge a book by their cover and then they judge you. Uh, so you hit the play button and it pops up a random book cover. You give it one to five stars just based on how good you think that book is after seeing only the cover and then it pops up the goodreads rating for that book and tells you you know you were accurate you gave it three stars and goodreads has given it three stars as well or you did not judge this very well at all and so you do it for 10 covers and then judgy makes a determination about how judgy you are with books and how accurate mm. um judgy told me this morning that i might like i might know what i like but i definitely know what i don't like and what i don't like is a lot of things mm. <laughs> and that was that was a heavy thing to hear about myself early in the morning, but the truth is undeniable. Did you know, is it a rant? I, I did it as well, and I got, uh, I was 86% accurate, so it gave me the, you're pretty consistent, we mm. like that. Um, did it? Does it randomly pull books? Is that uh, how it works, or is it the same? You know what, I'm doing it again right now while yeah. you're talking to find out, and so far the first four that it's shown me this round are the same ones that I saw mm. last time. Did you get a little life in yours? I did, yes. I think it must be a finite set. Yeah, I think it is okay. a finite set of just 10 books. Yeah, so far these are all, uh, while I'm clicking and we're talking, I was wondering about that. It's like, the are same. they pulling in a Goodreads API where it, uh, no, they've just manually entered the, yeah. the data. They just pick um, some, but maybe they'll add to it. And I think that's a fun, that's a fun It idea. was fun. I thought it was fun. I was just actually curious about how, uh, uh, how extensive works, the yeah. back end really was. So, yeah, that's fun. Go, You could go try that. I mean, I, you know, it's weird. It's weird that there's that old saying, never judge a book by a cover, which we all violate horribly oh, all, all the, the time. time. All the time. Split second oh. unconscious judgments. Well, I mean, we don't judge it as good or bad. I guess we just judge of whether or not you're interested yeah. in it, well, which actually, isn't really a moral Yeah, and, you know, I, mean, I was talking to Amanda earlier this week about something that I've been reading and liking, and I sent her the link to it, and she was like, that cover is terrible. How did you get over it? Like, when that book showed up mm. in the mail, how did you even get past the cover and decide to read it? And I was like, well, the only reason is that someone had mentioned it to me before, um, and the blurb sent Sounded great, so I decided to give it a try. But like publishers know that this matters, um, and we might not be able to articulate exactly why it matters. Yeah. But we we judge, you know, we judge stuff when we see them, and we have ideas about like what a cover says for whether a book is going to be serious or silly or lighthearted or or you know. genre. Like you know, for example, like crime and uh, romance and sci-fi, especially. You know, there's sort of uh, tropes of cover design for mm -hmm. real, like, hardcore genre stuff. 
and it, it's a signal. It tells you information. It's trying to communicate information yeah. to you. Um, it's not actually trying to get all readers to pick it up, I don't think. It's trying to send strong signals to a specific subset of readers. I think that's especially true, but maybe more, I don't know, when it's, uh, subliminal in mm-hmm. like literary fiction, right? Yeah. Which is more artistic uh, sort of And it's interesting covers. for um, especially paperback releases of literary fiction. Mm-hmm. To, that mm-hmm. tends to happen. Like the hardcover will often be a more abstract artistic interpretation of what's happening in the book. And then the books will get new covers for the paperback release. And that's the publisher intentionally trying to reach a broader and more commercial audience with the paperback than they were trying to reach with the hardcover. It's a very intentional, it's an interesting thing. I don't know how accurate publishers are with that or how good or not it is. I've certainly had like some author friends who uh, have struggled with agreeing with their publisher Mm -hmm. on their book covers and what they thought their book covers conveyed to readers or how the cover changed between hardcover and paperback and what they wanted from it. But it's very interesting. Um, Housefrau by Jill Alexander Esbaum is a really, um, I think, fascinating example of that this year. The hardcover design was sort of like a lavender with flowers on it. It looks like uh, it's like suburban wallpaper mm-hmm. kind of, but really mm-hmm. beautiful. Like, with a big, bold Helvetica white title in yeah, the, the middle and, of the um, Yeah, that's a book about a woman in her 30s who is angsty about her marriage and is thinking about her situation. And it's like, you know, if you generated a book exactly to my specifications, Housefrau would be pretty close. Um, but the paperback edition is... Oh, an up close of a woman's chest wearing a white button down shirt and like the buttons are kind of straining off her mm-hmm. button down shirt and it's very sexy and has a blurb that compares it to Fifty Shades of Grey, which is inaccurate, but like you really couldn't get much more different, like a bigger disparity between a hardcover and a paperback than that. And it's clear what uh, what Random House is trying to do with that paperback. Yeah, I've heard, and I don't know if it's true, maybe you've heard the similar thing that, you know, one way to tell if a book sold well in a hardback is if it's paperback has the same cover. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> you know, because like, you know, if it ain't broke sort mm-hmm. of situation. Um, I, again, I don't know if that's true. That's something I've, I've heard. But if some they're trying to give something a little extra juice, they'll bring out a new uh, a new cover for it. So, all right, we've got a troika of heroes of the, well, actually, there's more than three people involved, but three stories that t- together, uh, I, we'll call them our heroes of the month, really. They all mm-hmm. sort of deserve it. Um, t- all all uh, related to uh, locomotion of different kinds. So the first one is about, it's actually a larger story, about how librarians are getting books and Wi-Fi to quote-unquote book deserts. You may have heard the term food desert. It's been used for a few years to talk about parts of cities or towns, especially if they tend to be um, lower-income parts of town that don't have access to good grocery stores. So there's not as much fresh fruit and vegetables, a lot of you know corner markets and 7-Elevens and bodegas and things like that that don't typically carry fresh fruit and vegetables because there's such a low margin on them and it's hard to keep them fresh and whatever. Um, and so this is kind of piggybacking off of that idea of parts of towns and cities that aren't really close to a public library. Some things happen like, you know, the, the growth of towns tends to outstrip where the libraries are, especially as if there have been cuts for library budgets, especially cuts for library budgets with capital improvements, such as new branches and things of that nature. So what they're doing is the libraries all over the country um, are trying different kinds of things. And one is, we've talked about this before, the book vending machine. Mm-hmm. There's one in D.C., there's one in Oklahoma. It dispenses 100,000 books uh, in three locations in D.C. Um, there's That's book buses. so many books. So many. 
Um, there's uh, there's one. So the one we're talking about now is Seattle Public Library's Books on Bikes, which started in May of 2013, which has a little cart on the back of bikes, um, and librarians pedaled around, and they're also Wi-Fi stations at the same time. So they're bringing, you know, kind of the two hallmark. I have to say the hallmark amenities of the modern mm-hmm. library, which are physical books and Wi-Fi to places that don't usually get them. Kind of like the old bookmobile idea, but even more, I guess, hyper-local. Yeah, I want to buy a fleet of bikes with little book trailers on the back and just do this now. (laughs) You know, I was thinking about this. Like, I wonder, I was at the library the other day and I was picking up uh, uh, Miss Marvel Volume 3 and reading it. I'm behind on some of my graphic novel reading, and I was wondering, like, what the 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 head of the tail for checking out of books is. Like, what percentage of the checkouts could you get by just carting around the top 100 most checked out books of the month? Oh, probably a lot. Probably a lot, right? Like, you're not going to get everything, but you're going to get a lot of stuff that people are interested in. So, probably with not you know ha- having to carry around a huge thing, you know, you can get 25 titles on the back of one of these yeah. book bikes. I don't um, know. I don't know how closely library patterns follow bookstore patterns, but I remember from my bookseller days learning that you know most of the books in a bookstore won't sell any copies. Like, and this was in a big Barnes and Noble. Like, most of the mm-hmm. books on the shelf, the average is to sell zero of that title right. um, per month because so much of it is backlist, and that the vast majority of the sales in any given month were from that like a handful of classics that are constantly selling. And, Gatsby, To Kill a Mockingbird, right, things like that. And the handful of uh, new titles that were big and buzzy and that were constantly selling. Um, and that everything else, you know, does sort of taper off. So you probably could if you had the top 25 titles and a couple copies of each of those yeah. on your on your bike. You wouldn't meet every everybody's needs, but you could probably satisfy a lot of mobile customers that way. I The, the thing I wonder about is returning. Like if you live in a book desert, oh. do, are these on schedules where you wait for the bike, you could come drop it off? Or hmm. that seems like, you know, something that's not mentioned here that might be a little bit of a, a, a crimp. Uh, Rita, um, who hosts, uh, our friend and colleague who hosts a Dear Book Nerd podcast, also hosts by Book Riot, which is a show you should check out. It's an advice show that's book-centered, Life, Love, and Literature. She's a librarian here in Brooklyn. And she tweeted the other day that the, the library was closed, but there were still people huddled around outside using the Wi-Fi oh, huh. out, outside the door because you could still mm-hmm. log in, um, which I thought was, was pretty cool. So yeah, if you know anything about um, these sorts of programs, I'd like to especially know how they choose what books go on the the little shelf they they toll around and how the returns process works. Um, I'm curious about that. And so that's that's hero yeah, cluster hero, number one. Cluster. Why don't you tell me about hero cluster number two? Well, I'm just now thinking about how we're going to be in Seattle for some business meetings later this fall, and mm. perhaps they'll let us ride along. Oh, that's interesting. With yeah, them. We, we could do a little video feature. Hero number two is um, Jose Alberto Gutierrez, who drives a garbage truck in Bogota, Colombia. He uh, is an avid reader. He loves Tolstoy and Victor Hugo. And um, his favorite book, uh, or one of his favorite books is 100 Years of Solitude. This is a man who really cares about um, books. And he has started rescuing books from the trash. He started rescuing books from the trash actually almost 20 years ago, while he was driving a garbage truck at night through some of Bogota's wealthier neighborhoods. And this 
reading material that nobody wanted anymore was slowly piling up. And now the ground floor of his house has become a makeshift community library. That's mm. It says it's stacked from floor to ceiling with 20,000 books ranging from chemistry textbooks to children's classics. Um, books are a luxury for people who grow up in low income neighborhoods like his and new reading material at bookstores is too expensive. There are 19 public libraries in Bogota, um, which has eight and a half million oh, people, man. but they tend to be far away from the poorer areas. So these are likely book deserts. Yep. Um, and he says, you know, this should be in all neighborhoods, on each corner of every neighborhood, in all the towns, in all departments and all the rural areas. Books are our salvation. And that is what Columbia needs. This is the best. So good. I mean, you know, it's kind of like the... And the third story we're going to get to, it's kind of trying to, it's looking for, I guess, uh, abundant, kind of matching abundance and uh, scarcity. It's like Robin Hood of books without the stealing. Without the, ste- <laughs> the stealing, which is just picking stuff up, right? Yeah, basically. Right. But, but, you know, in some, in some locations, there's too much. Um, in some locations, there's too little. And trying to figure out how to match that, you know, it'd Redistribution be of literary wealth. This is one of those things, too, like... I talk a lot of, uh, you know, I have my skepticism about Uber and things mm-hmm. like this on-demand economy. But this would be great if there were some sort of app or interface where if you had books you were trying to get rid of or you needed a home for, you could sort of send a bat signal mm. and he could come pick them up or someone else could come pick them up and have them be redistributed, right? Um, and like the with the bikes on the books on bikes, they're like trying to find lightweight ways of getting out to places that don't have the kinds of coverage that they'd like to have. Um, boy, 19 libraries for eight and a half million people doesn't seem like that, doesn't it's, seem like that much. It's really not. He um, credits his love of reading. Gutierrez credits his love of reading to his mother who always read to him every night. And even though he's, he is still sifting through um, garbage piles to find new additions to his library, he's become known as Columbia's Lord of the Books. So thousands of people have donated books to him as well. And he has sent those to other libraries libraries around the country because he doesn't have room for them all. So he really is doing, this is a really incredible thing for one person to be doing, creating not just a center, a community center in his own town uh, for people to come and get things to read, but he's sending them out to other towns and cities that need books as well. Yeah. It just says by, for comparison's sake, 19, 19 library branches in Bogota of eight and a half million people uh, in Brooklyn, I think I'm just looking at the list here. There's it looks like about 50 branches of the book, Brooklyn Public Library for about half as many people. So you're looking at you know three times for half. So um, Bogota is about one sixth the number per wow. capita at Brooklyn. Just a little back of the uh, back of the computer screen math. Um, and I don't actually think of Brooklyn as being particularly well covered by public libraries. I, that's something I don't know. It's like per capita. Um, uh, mm. Library distribution in, in major American and world. Forget about the world, which I clearly know very little about. Um, but <laughs> U.S. alone, because like my hometown, the the great uh, Lawrence, Kansas, has one big public library for about seventy thousand people. When uh-huh. you think about it that way, it's like hugely over yeah. <laughs> over uh, over covered compared to large cities. Which um, anyway, that's something to think about. Um, the last one in our, our, our triptych of heroes of the week. Um, I think we've talked about a story like this somewhat before, but this is a school that um, got started with a books and bikes program. Um, the guy's name is a teacher, Scott Earl, at the gym. He was reading a bike at a gym. And he was a teacher, uh, excuse me, counselor at an elementary school in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And he's like, huh, 
why couldn't we have exercise bikes in the school yeah, was, for the reading was, time? Like the teachers were noticing that the kids wouldn't sit still long enough to yeah. read. So, you know, using some of that nervous energy that uh, elementary school kids are so well known for. So he, he, with the help of Craigslist and garage sales, he outfitted an entire spare classroom with stationary bikes. And the other classes in the elementary school, they book, you know, 15 or 20 minutes of time. They've set up little reading podiums on each. There's elliptical machines. There's recumbent bikes. Um, there's regular uh, stationary bikes. And they, they do it. And the kids really like it. And they're reading more. And they're getting out and moving, you know, especially in inclement weather. You can imagine... North Carolina does have terrible winters, but you could imagine someplace mm -hmm. like Chicago, New York, oh, yeah. Boston in the winter where it's hard to get outside. When they collected data and the kids reading test scores and their proficiency went up. And the more time that students spent in the read and ride, read and ride room, the better they did on the state reading tests also. There's sort of a larger movement too. like you hear. I'm not a standing desk person, but there is a lot of talk about like sitting still for long periods of times, it's just bad for you. Like it's just mm -hmm. super bad for you. And especially if you're a kid where you have sort of a, uh, uh, a restlessness built into your existence at the same time. But this makes a lot of sense. You know, it's like, again, it's trying to match a couple of different things. Like we talk about when we do our audiobook reads and how I've met, you know, integrated audiobooks in my time. It's like combining a couple of activities um, at one and the same time. There's really no reason where you're doing reading time um, and frankly, there's probably no reason if you're having some other kind of classwork time or doing a lecture or some sort of mm. participatory activity, like couldn't you be doing math with these little yeah, games on bikes? It says here that um, these read and ride programs now exist at least informally in 30 states across mm. the U.S. and that the the trend is popping up with stuff that's not just exercise bikes. They're under desk ellipticals. Um, somebody's using something called bouncy bands. People are using exercise balls as chairs in oh, their yeah, classrooms. Oh, yeah, that's a big one too. Yeah, yeah the balls. Because it takes like a it, certain ambient and energy you just have to, to engage sort of your core on it. Yeah. yeah oh engage your core <laughs> is, is that something related to exercise i wouldn't know <laughs> yeah Engaging engage your core. your core is a thing oh okay <laughs> uh, all right so the, so we got we've got uh books on bikes we got re bike and read in classrooms and the um the the book lord of bogota so that that makes you feel good it does this that should cure your summer boss one more thing that made me feel good about the literary world this week was a press release that i got from restless books which is a small publisher they are rolling out a new book prize for new immigrant writing there's a ten thousand dollar award and this is an award for fiction written by first generation american immigrants and um, they say the ethos of america is defined by its immigrants their stories have always been an essential component of the nation's cultural consciousness, from Isaac Bashevis Singer to Jhumpa Lahiri, from Jacob Rees to Maxine Hong Kingston. In novels, short stories, memoirs, and works of journalism, immigrants have shown us what resilience and family devotion we're capable of and have expanded our sense of what it means to be American. In these times of intense xenophobia, it is more important than ever that these stories reach the broadest possible audience. And so what they're doing at Restless Books is taking fiction submissions um, September through December. December of this year. Nonfiction submissions will be accepted next fall, and the winner will receive $10,000 um, and all the bragging rights of saying that you won this award and hopefully increased visibility for first generation American immigrant writers and for the stories that they tell. There's nothing about this that I don't love. Yeah, I don't have really anything to add, really. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a good story. And if you know someone or you yourself are someone that would be a good candidate to, to submit, go do it, man. Please do, go yeah. Do, if you're working for a publisher and you've been working on books like this, go, go, go. Um, let's see. Let's go, to, let's go around the world. 
this is a weird story. So Haruki Murakami has a new book coming out in Japan in on September 10th. It's a collection of essays uh, that he contributed over the years to a literary magazine called Monkey with another 150 pages of content. So it's, you know, it's kind of one of these, it's an essay collection. Yeah, from collected works of new and Yeah, it's not a new novel. It's, like not, one of the, it's yeah. not like if there's a huge new Murakami novel like QT84 or something like that. But in Japan where it's really hard to think of an equivalent of Murakami to America. I don't really think there is one, to be honest, where no. he's both the most internationally recognized and the most lauded like it's it's and a it's big deal like pretty close to rock star status yes. i guess yes. you know some of our young adult authors have this kind of recognition but there's definitely not a literary author right. in, in the u.s who's known the way that murakami is known in japan right yeah so anyway his new book has come out september 10th and this uh, the largest bookstore ch- chain in japan is oh boy uh kino kunia i just took a shot that's a good shot good shot Kuno, uh, kino kunia is the largest bookstore chain in japan has bought up 90% of the initial print run of this book to sell at its brick-and-mortar stores. Um, and just to give you some example, they have about 10% of the domestic book market in Japan. So they're way out of scale and, with what they usually do. And they're doing outlets. it to make sure that customers who want to purchase the book have to go to a physical bookstore. Yeah, and there's no, in this publishing perspectives piece, there's no kind of insider baseball of like how they manage this. Like, did they pay a premium for it? Did they, did they have to promise other kind of purchases? Like why would the publisher agree to it? Cause you know, it's going to piss off the other, you know, Amazon's yeah. not happy about this. You know, um, Rakuten, which is the parent company of Kobo, which also does a lot of, um, Japan's eBooks or book sales. Wonder, you know, they're not happy about I this. I wonder if the publisher has any say in it. Like, I've oh, run, you know they have. Well, you don't think okay. they have saying? Well, I don't know. I've run into stuff like just buying for the quarterly box where I'm trying to buy like 2,000 copies of of some title for our quarterly box. And the quarterly people will call one of the publishers and go either through their special sales or they go through Ingram, mm-hmm. like through the big book distributors. And we'll know, like I'll have talked to the author or I'll have talked to the editor and I'll know how many copies of the book exist in the world that are available for sale, like that there are more than 2000. Um, but often the publisher won't have that many and will need to do another print run or Ingram won't have that many because they are all at Amazon. Like I've heard that story more than once. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah. Maybe, Maybe, I guess, maybe they just got their order in first and no, you know, no one really had ever considered that someone might just try to, to snark them all up. Yeah. It's, <laughs> you know, it's a very strange story. I, as a consumer, I can, it's kind of a crafty move on their part because if, you know, you're a Japanese book lover, you're going to go pick up the new Murakami, which basically means you're going to need to go to one of these bookstores. But like, aren't you going to be disgruntled about it? I would grumble my way to mm. this bookstore if I, if the only reason that I were going there is that the bookstore were forcing me to. Right. Let's, I'm trying to think of an analogous one. So let's say, uh, for you and I, Morrison has a new book out mm-hmm. and Barnes and Noble is the only place to get it. How mad would we be? I'd be annoyed. Like I'd I would go annoyed. to Barnes and Noble and I would get it, but I don't normally buy my new hardcovers at Barnes and Noble. Well, that's what, that's exactly the point. And, yeah, I know. Like they they would get that one purchase out of me, but they're not going to like make a lifetime devoted yeah. customer by forcing me through their doors. I don't, yeah, it's, I don't know. Uh, I'd be curious. I, I mean, mean maybe there's some people that have never been to this store. Yeah, businesses manipulate customers all the time and in all kinds of ways, but I don't like to be reminded that I'm being manipulated. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's a little, it's kind of, uh, it's holding the books hostage, I guess, right? Yeah, you're not competing right. based on that your store is great. You're competing based on a virtual monopoly on a title. Yeah, was it, uh, I think maybe it was you who were joking like on Twitter or it might have been in critical linking like, so we're going to fight one monopoly by creating our own monopoly? Yeah, right. That's kind of a fight fire with fire. But I don't know that this, I've never heard of anything remotely like this before. I know I think I've heard of stories. I shouldn't say no. I think I've heard of stories about like Barnes and Noble back in the old days, like in the mid '90s, when they were really at the the zenith of their power, where they could basically demand as much of a print run as they wanted. Now, I never heard of them doing anything like this, but they were not the ones if for a hot title getting the short end of the stick. Yeah, let's put it that. this seems like a raw deal for book customers, perhaps. Like if Kino Kino man. Yeah. Um, has 10% of the domestic book market, but now they have 90% of the supply of this book. How many readers are there who want the book but live nowhere near yeah, one of these outlets too. and can't get it? Like, Or I guess maybe you can order it online from them if they're the largest bookstore chain in, in Japan. In terms of geography, but there's a lot of people mm -hmm. and there's only 60 outlets uh, of this particular bookstore. So I don't know. I, you know, I would just I'm buy the. To see how this plays out. Man, I'd be annoyed. I would just buy the digital version. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess that's how I would, I would work too. Um, only a hundred. You know, I was a little surprised at the only a hundred thousand initial print run, but it doesn't say anything about subsequent print runs, right. which for Merck Army there generally are. Yeah, maybe we'll get to see some info about how quickly that sells out. That'd be interesting. Yeah. So that's that's the next move in fighting Amazon. Just buy all the books. Sure. Just hold them. Just I mean, just, just hold them. Um, all right, let's do our next sponsor. We got a new sponsor. We got Casper Mattresses. Oh, wait, wait, Mattresses Online? What are you talking about? Uh, today's sponsor is Casper Mattress. So here's the deal. We've talked about Harry's before where um, it just seems too – for what, you, what you're buying, it seems like exorbitantly expensive. And surely you out there who sleep, and that's most of us sleep have had the experience of going and trying to buy mattresses like, oh my word, there, how expensive are these, it's right? It's crazy. It is crazy. It's crazy. So, But you spend about a third of your life sleeping, so you want to, you don't want to skimp on it, right? Like that's the one thing that you, do, you don't really want to skimp on. And if you're on. listening to this show, you spend a chunk of your life lying oh, in bed reading. Well, that is also true. Um, so what Casper did, they, they, they've, they've brought together two new technologies in making mattresses, but the internet. So latex foam and memory foam all together. You may have heard of these things before. So it's got just the right amount of like, you can kind of settle in, but it also has a little bounce. So you're not just like, you know, on a big like feather bed where you're just sort of like lumpy and sitting there. Um, there's a risk-free trial and return policy because everyone understands like part of the fun or part of the process, at least I wouldn't say it's fun of going to shop for mattresses. Like you're tired and then you go to the, you know, the huge mattress store and you go lay down. Yeah. You have to, but Goldilocks. It feels good. You have to do the Goldilocks, but it always, but you're always it always feels good because you've been tired and walking around all day. So it's a little bit it's a little bit tricky to know how good the mattress really is. Casper, they deliver it right to you and you can try and get this is crazy. A hundred day free trial. So anytime in that first hundred days, uh, you only say, you know what, this isn't for me. They'll come and pick it up. So at the store, you get like, what, 90 seconds and you're making a decision. Right. The Casper, you actually get to sleep on it for several, like a whole quarter of the year you could sleep on that it. is sufficient and time to collect data about your sleep experience i would say i would say you've got a you've got a reliable data set there um definitely the sample size for your year sleeping is um a third of it is more than enough and here's the prices so these are premium mattresses uh and it's so it's 500 dollars for a twin side mattress and 950 dollars for a king side mattress michelle and i have one of these fancy memory foam uh 
mattresses that you know Casper uses the same some of the technology. And let me just say, it, it was more than nine hundred fifty dollars, and we got a queen. Uh, it was quite a bit more than that. So you're getting a really good deal, taking a lot of the hassle out of mattress shopping. And always, oh, you know, some of the especially in New York, I don't know what it is where on the country, like some of the specialty mattress stores, kind of a high pressure environment. People are like trying to tell you all this stuff. It's kind of like buying a car. Um, where it's like they have all these features and bells and whistles. Like, I just want a mattress that feels good, that I can rely on over time. Um, oh, so, and if you want to try it out, you can get $50 credit towards any mattress purchase by going to casper.com slash riot and using the offer code riot at the checkout. The terms and conditions apply. Be sure you read all of that stuff there. They get, it gets delivered to you uh, in these like crazy shrink wraps, like vacuum suck tubes. And then it's like, it, you cut it open, it expands out and flops open. So, you know, how do you get a mattress in and how do they do this? Well, one of the things they've done is develop this packaging technology there. So um, casper.com, uh, C-A-S-P-E-R.com slash riot and go check it out. Try your free 100-day trial. It's, you know, a good uh, a good gift maybe going in the fall season. A nice oh. premium mattress for, you you know, a family member, especially a significant other mm-hmm. or a parent or something like that or for yourself because, frankly, you know, you're not gonna you're not gonna go. You're not gonna be like, oh man, I I wish I hadn't bought this really awesome mattress. Whatever shall I do? That's just not how it works with mattresses. Okay. Now I just want to go take a nap, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it's been that kind of a day. Um, I asked. Let's see. I guess a few last weeks week. ago. Yeah, it was, was it just last yeah. week? I asked for people to give us stories about book bannings around the world and how it compares to you know. Other things we were talking about the story in Venice, where the mayor had uh, done a unilateral ban on uh, 49 LBGTQ titles, and there was a backlash. And 20, 263 other Italian writers had said, "You know what? If you're going to ban these guys, we're going to do a simple. You know, please take ours off. We don't want to be associated with this." Blew up in his face a little bit, um, and I asked, you know, we asked. If you know of any other stories like this, to send them our way. A couple people did. We'll get to that in a second. But also, we had an Italian listener who said. She lives in Italy and hadn't heard about the story and frankly wasn't surprised oh. because of there's, you know, that she wasn't surprised, A, that she hasn't heard of it because it this is, kind of, I guess, the kind of thing that happens in local Italian politics, I guess, but also that their track record with public policy and LBGTQ issues isn't great. Um, so that's one snapshot. Two more snapshots. We're, we're, we're going to stay in Japan just for a second. Um, a, a Japanese school board banned uh, a, ma- a manga book a manga, if you don't know, is um, a variety. I think it's just Japanese for comic, but it also has its own genre implications, which I'm not a, a, a spe- specifically a um, expert in. But the, a, the a southwestern city of Matsue removed it from all of its school libraries. So this is a, this is an official banning, right? This isn't mm-hmm. pulling it off an optional reading list or taking it off a syllabus. This is taking it out of the libraries. It's a 10-volume manga series called the Hadashi no Gen, which translates to Barefoot, Barefoot Gen. And the author, it's based on the author's own experience um, during Hiroshima um, when he was six. Uh, his name is uh, Kaiji Nakazawa. Um, and it's a powerful, it's, the series began in 1973, serialized in a leading manga magazine. And it's, you know, it's a famous book apparently in Japan. This isn't a new book that, you know, someone's sort of objecting to for the first time. Kind of mm-hmm. like what was it, uh, Some Girls Are by Courtney Summers. Like, mm-hmm. oh, oh. Right. This, is a, this is kind of a established it's, it's series. considered a classic. Yeah. Um, the, Jap- the, the, the Japanese 
comic has been around for a while. Again, it's been around for 40 years. The, the comics criticize the late emperor. Um, there are depictions of the aftermath of the bombing. You can imagine that that's not um, particularly soothing imageries. Um, illustrated atrocities committed by the former Japanese army themselves in addition to the bombing. So they, they decided to ban it um, because it was too graphic. Uh, I, you know, I have to admit, I was pretty sh- shocked by this mm-hmm. when I saw the story. Um, it's not c- the kind of thing we typically hear about American book bannings, which, to be honest, they kind of fall into a couple of categories. It's either uh, too much sex, um, uh, stuff about race, uh, or curse words. Right. Is basically what it is. When Mouse by Art Spiegelman, which is a yeah. you know graphic novel uh, in, from the U.S. about our is he from the U.S.? I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. About World War II is often challenged, and I see it show up on you know the lists of the most frequently challenged books. But we haven't seen anything like this where it's been removed from uh, all the yes. copies have been removed from uh, anyone's yeah. access. Um, so that, that's that's inter- that's just a data point. Like I don't know what's going to happen. It has been challenged. Mm-hmm. Um, 44 of the 49 school principals in the city want the curbs lifted. So this is another situation where the sort of troops on the ground, you know, teachers, principals, librarians are fighting a top-down edict. When we hear – most of the stories that we hear about in the U.S. and that we talk about on the show are things that begin with parents. Like one or two parents are angry about content that they don't think is appropriate for their child or anyone's children. And then they make enough of a fuss that the, that it makes its way to like a school board hearing or to where a principal makes a decision and then other parents fight the decision and it sort of works its way up. But we don't, there's no information in this piece about where this started. I'm interested in in that. Like, um, why now all of a sudden, where, where did the, the complaints about this book originate? Was, is it someone in the government that doesn't want this anti-war graphic novel to be, or this manga to be out in circulation? Is it, was it a parent? Like who has the concern and where is that coming from? Um, cause we're, we don't, we don't see that here. And I'm interested in whether the pattern works the same way around the world or if it's different in the U.S. So that's one data point. On the other end of the spectrum about this, this is, this one's, that story is about banning. This one is about, I guess, um, a different scale of permissiveness. This was a story that uh, came up. It was in this week, um, a children's book author named England Rosland. Um, she's a Norwegian writer and she wrote a piece in the Guardian about, you know, how few taboos there are in uh, in Scandinavian's children's books, which I thought was really interesting. Just like the kinds of things that we, I have to admit, I'm just sort of indoctrinated to think would just, just don't appear. This is not what children's books are about. So let me give you an example. Um, let's see. Da, 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 da. Uh, this one's called The Thief. It's a Scandinavian book. It's aimed at children around eight. In it, the main character, Jolver, learns how to masturbate from his friend Bob. The friend tells him how it's good to touch yourself while looking at a naked woman in a magazine. And that's, you know, it's about sexuality and your body and permissiveness and just would never in a hundred million years um, make it into a school library in the U.S. Um, and there's another one, uh, uh, LBGQ book, is, if I understand it correctly, about young girls in the military. Uh, and the translation is something I'm not going to say on the air, to be honest, but it's – much more explicit and mm-hmm. open about sexuality and, and gender identity. And won a prize identity. in 2011. And won a prize. Um, it, I just thought this was a really interesting article about how 
this kind of thing is just built into their sensibility about what books do for kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have, um, you know, it got me thinking a little bit about the highfalutin language we use around books and kids. Like it's your imagination, it's good for your education and blah, blah, blah. Reading is good. But we don't really ever talk about the specifics of what that is. Like, okay, it uses your imagination and you learn things. Well, what is it that you're learning? Uh, what is it that you're imagining? And what is it that you can and can't learn? And what is it that you can and can't imagine? And I guess I'm going to keep it to the sort of school library level because that seems to be the most policed space mm-hmm. around kids' books is, is school libraries. Well, you know, a lot of kids um, between the ages of 9 and 12 start going through puberty. They have older s- siblings going through puberty. They know kids that have siblings that are going through puberty. That they're seeing images. They're, you know, they're, they're being sexual beings um, before we, we really understand them to be. And we keep that from them in school libraries. So they don't get that. Like, I think I had my first health education. They also, even the euphemisms are interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, health education, which is basically sex ed. Um, I didn't get that till I was 15. Really? Uh, yeah, I think I was in ninth. Well, no, that's what, how old are you in fifth? Uh, 14. 14? Eighth grade, eighth grade. Uh, we had human growth and development in fourth grade. But human a, growth and development. There's I mean, a euphemism there's for There's a you. euphemism too. But let, let's just say by the time we were 14, the horse was out of the proverbial barn. <laughs> um, for for uh, for the maturation for process, out that things happen to your body. Yeah, and you know maybe some early preparation at eight, nine, ten. That yeah, you know yeah. being a sexual being is something that happens is not the worst and, thing in the world. Yeah, I've been thinking about that same idea along the lines of this article this week as well. And also about how often when we talk about the books that are banned or challenged in the US and the things that people don't want to see appearing in books that kids encounter in the classroom or in public school libraries, we we come back around to this notion of how books, one of the great functions of books and of education is to not just educate us about ourselves and like what will happen to our own bodies, but to inform us that people who aren't like us exist in the world as well and to give us a window into what their experiences are and that books help us to develop empathy. Um, And another piece on that spectrum as well is how much we've been talking in the last few years, how much publishing has been talking and the We Need Diverse Books movement Mm -hmm. has been talking about how important and powerful it is for kids to see themselves and their own experiences reflected in books. So you've got like, you know, these the books that they're talking about in these Scandinavian libraries would not make it into no. our children's uh, our public school libraries, but the, these kids do get an opportunity to explore you know some ideas and experiences and questions that they might have had and to be exposed to things that will happen to their bodies, to be exposed to the notion that there are gay people in the mm-hmm. world, um, to be exposed to the idea that there are people whose ideas are different from them, and um, I think that's really powerful. I. I I would lean toward the Scandinavian way of doing things. Yeah, I, to I, I would too. But mm-hmm. it took it kind of took this kind of article to kind of shake me out of my. This is just the normal way kids' books are. Uh, you know, like mm-hmm. this is just sort of the status quo, and I can't think. I, it's a story I, it, about three bears, and they learn to share a ball. Yeah, right. Yeah. You know, or it's an anthropomorphic cricket, uh, you know, basically say doing a retirement account. You know what that story is. Um, and, you know, frankly, and this is we didn't have this on the agenda for this week because it kind of happened between episodes. But the situation at Duke University with these uh-huh. freshmen that are refusing to read Fun Home because lesbians, um, maybe they would be not so shocked. Right. If at, you know, 10, they had a book talking about 
um, girls who like girls. And that that's um, and that's okay and that's normal. normal. Um, yeah, and that's the, it's okay, and that's just part of the 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 spectrum of human existence, right? The um, remarkable, neither to be lauded or judged. Right. It's it's right. just a thing that is. Yeah. Um, the I thought the most interesting thing about that um, that story about Duke students and Fun Home, like Fun Home, has been designated as one of the books that all the incoming freshmen are going to read, and the students who are refusing to read it are saying that they don't think that Duke considered the existence of people like them. Like, I don't think that Duke had me in mind, or they understood me when I selected this book. And I think I said it to Amanda, like, no, I think Duke had exactly. Yeah, I think you I think you got the turned around there in buddy. mind. The reason yeah. that an administration would choose a book um, that's about a young woman's experience growing up, knowing that she's gay and dealing with the difficulties of accepting her identity and coming out to her family and the complications that that was going to cause for her and then what her young adult life was like, exposing people who don't want to acknowledge that gay people are a reality to stories like that is exactly like you are the person that the administration had in mind when they picked this book. This is a function of education. And I don't think we'd encounter it so much at the college level if we were exposing kids to a broader range of ideas and truths. Like uh, Daniel Jose Older, a great friend of the show, um, talks on Twitter all the time about how diverse books aren't just about showing that people are different. A a diverse story is a story that tells the truth, that shows the spectrum of human experience um, in in some way or in multiple ways that people can be different and that we just can't come back around to that often enough. Um, I don't know, Jeff, maybe I'm going to move to Sweden. Uh, I mean, I hear the, the education and the healthcare is phenomenal and the booze is pretty good too. There's a lot of, (laughs) there's a lot of salt fish. I don't know about that. Yeah. Winter Uh, is long there. Yeah. So, but you know, on the other hand, the normalization that this kind of, uh, I guess this kind of integration of, diverse experiences into children's book would do would be the precisely the kind of things that would really threaten people's worldview. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, there's a reason it wouldn't happen because this is a really, the, the power of this kind of normalization is considerable. Like it's not a joke, like this would really be uh, a sea change in what we understand to be normal in kids' books to look like. And I think there's some truth to the fact that what kids read and experience when they're five, six, seven, eight, nine becomes part of how they understand oh, sure. normal to be. Um, so anyway, that, that, that's, that's going to be an ongoing conversation. I think one reason we're seeing more and more objections to books is that um, there's more and more stuff coming into books that people would find objectable, objectionable. Um, so it's, it's a push-me-pull-you situation. Um, we just got to keep pushing, I guess. Yeah. Okay. All right. You want to hear right. about our last sponsor before I, do I tell hear you about, about new books sponsor. this yeah. week? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Audible is back this week, and they want you specifically to know about a new program that James Patterson is undertaking. Um, we talk publishing talks about James Patterson as one of the world's best-selling authors, and like that is not to be understated. Since oh, my word. <laughs> since 2001, he has sold more than 300 million copies of his books just in print. <laughs> Um, But he's also and we've talked about some of his other uh, projects on the show before. He's extremely vocal in his commitment to helping motivate reluctant readers to embrace the power of books. Patterson was a reluctant reader. He's the father of a reluctant reader. And he one of his missions is to inspire kids to find fun and entertainment 
in reading. This is extremely important to him. It's a, a personal goal that he's working on. So this summer, Audible partnered with James Patterson to create a program that encourages reluctant young readers to find their way to books by listening to audiobooks, and it promotes the concept of family listening. So mm -hmm. the program recommends titles and suggests genres that parents and kids can listen to together. Um, there's a recommended listening list from James Patterson that includes discounted audiobooks for family listening. There are reading guides for families on Patterson's featured series like Middle School, Daniel X, and Treasure Hunters. There's an Instagram campaign to have kids and their families show where listening took them. Uh, and there's you know interesting information here um, with children home from school and families looking for opportunities to spend time together and finding activities that are suitable for everyone in the household, listening to audiobooks is the perfect way to keep everyone thoughtfully entertained. Um, like maybe you're all doing chores together and you can put the audiobook on the family stereo or you're on a road trip or you're out in the garden. And this is, you know, one more method that can be fun and exciting for kids to get books into their lives. Um, in an article on CNN.com, James Patterson wrote, here's a simple but powerful truth that many parents and schools don't act on. The more kids read, the better readers they become. Uh, the program introduces audiobooks as a way to encourage kids to read more. They can read in the car. They can read at the dinner table. Yeah, I guess if you don't want to talk at dinner, you could listen to an <laughs> audiobook <laughs> together. You can be listening in bed with the lights off. Unlike movies or video games or other activities that require kids to stay in one place, audiobooks are uniquely situated. You could do uh, it on a stationary bike. You really you could engage your core on a yoga ball and listen to an audiobook. Uh, or your kid can clean their room and there listen to an audiobook. Um, countless studies have confirmed the ability of audiobooks to improve early literacy skills, to expand kids' vocabularies, to increase their comprehension, and so much more. So you can go to audible.com slash Patterson to get more information about this program and check out the discounted family and children's books that are being featured as part of James Patterson's program. It occurs to me that if you have a you know last gasp of summer vacation mm. happening here before Labor Day, this would be a perfect thing to do with your kids. So audible.com slash Patterson get more information about James Patterson's program check out discounted family and children's audiobooks I got I got a it's not really it's not a book for kids I mean it could be though I they might find it hideously boring but um, for listeners of this show especially um, I listened to my most recent audiobook that I finished was naked statistics stripping the the dread from the data by Charles Whelan Ooh. and it's basically a introduction to basic statistical concepts, um, which a lot of it I knew, but I also wanted a refresher on some of it. I'm doing some statistics for the company, but also we talk about um, studies and statistics on our show. And so if if statistics and some of the, the vocabulary and ideas of statistics are foreign to you, this is a really good introduction. It's very um, approachable. It's a fun read. He uses a lot of interesting examples. So things like, you know, standard deviation and central limits and statistical significance um, talks about some of the more um, famous recent studies like about uh, vaccines um, where you can sort of tell, you know, what makes sense, what doesn't make sense, how things like sampling error are um, our calculated regression analysis, one of the you know, maybe the most powerful statistical tool ever invented, where you can have a big group of data and then isolate mm -hmm. various pieces of that data and see if there's correlation between them. Talks about the difference between correlation and causation and why you should know things about that. I, it's I like methodology it was, corner 101. It is. It's a method, methodology corner 101. And he does talk a lot about, 
you know, you know how many studies are difficult to repeat. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. It also talks about how like the, the old lies, damn lies and statistics. Well, statistics mm-hmm. don't really lie, but you can use weird ways to interpret them and weird ways to, um, you know, what premises you built up, like your data set and your samples and all that kind of thing where it can be very difficult to get a really good statistical data set um, because you're coming with the wrong statistics. Maybe you're, you're getting too many of one kind of person, not enough of another kind of person. It can become very difficult. So it's a 10-hour audiobook, so it's pretty long. But if you want to engage your brain and, you know, really learn something, I thought it was a really good uh, primer on it. You know, and it's the kind of thing where you might might not want to just sit down and read it, you know, on an armchair. But if you're out there walking or you're driving or you're doing something else, um, uh, it's a pretty good read and a good introduction. And one I'd recommend for people who like, yeah, I want to get more statistically literate and I'm not really sure know where to start. And after you go to that, you can go read uh, um, Signal of Noise by Nate Silver, which is um, a more advanced statistical uh, book. Um, I use a lot of good examples. But um, I, I thought it was really interesting and a good primer for me to, to brush up because it's been a while since I've had statistics. And uh, it's important. You know, the other thing is we're getting more and more – I think more and more on the internet where you get like the uh, the synopsis of a scientific study mm-hmm. or – and I think you do, you, do, you do need more scientific armament to understand that because, like it or not, the headlines get written in one way or, or reinterpreted and spun, which I think you owe it to yourself to have a little uh, inoculation against, you know, a little protection from yep. so you can go engage it with yourself. Um, you know, we do that on the show sometimes and, uh, you know, I can get better about myself too. So that was good. Naked Statistics by Charles Whelan. All right. Tell me about new book. Okay. So along the lines of uh, what we were just talking about with Scandinavia and diverse books and the power of these stories that we're telling kids, the first new book I'm uh, going to talk about this week is a middle grade book called George by Alex Gino. Um, this is about a little girl uh, who is born a boy. People look at her and they see George, but she knows that she's not a boy. She knows on the inside that she's a girl. She wants to be Melissa. Um, And George thinks that she's going to have to keep the secret forever. Um, Her teacher announces that their class is going to perform Charlotte's Web. And George really, really wants to play Charlotte. But the teacher says that she can't try out for the part because she's a boy. Um, So Melissa, with the help of her best friend, cook up a plan not just so she can play Charlotte, but so that uh, everyone can know who she really is. Um, Liberty, uh, I have not read this yet. Liberty read it and talked about it on all the books for this week and just really raved about it. I've heard nothing but wonderful things about it. And also this is this is groundbreaking. Um, it's the first uh, that, I, that I know of middle grade book um, with a trans main character. Mm-hmm. Um, really important for kids, no matter who they are, to be able to see other people who are like them in fiction. Um, We are hearing stories now in the media from transgender adults who talk about, um, I just read Janet Mock's memoir, Redefining Realness, and and she talks about not not knowing what being trans was, not knowing that she wasn't the only person who felt that way um, when she was growing up, and uh, how much Uh, how much it meant to meet other people and to hear their stories as she was an adult, but also how powerful it could, it could have been um, to be able to, you know, explore her identity and the truth of herself much earlier. And so George by Alex Gino is about that. It's about being who you are um, and a story that for middle grade kids for ages eight through 12 about um, an important 
you know, real identity and, and an important thing that we're finally getting some stories about in our culture. I'm really glad that this book exists. I've been hearing about it since BEA and I'm looking forward to picking it up myself. Um, but if you're exploring these ideas with your kids or you want to, this is uh, probably a great way into that conversation of talking to them about who some of the people are in the world and what their experience is. So that's called George. Um, also a book that I really loved so much this week, uh, Rising Strong by Brene Brown. Um, now I can finally stop reading raving about Daring Greatly all the time or just mix it up a little for a variety. Um, Brene Brown is a sociologist and uh, she's got decades of research experience. She also does a lot of um, coaching and public speaking. She works with individual clients and corporate groups. Um, Daring Greatly was about vulnerability and the power of taking risks and how that improves our personal lives and our work lives and all of the relationships. Rising Strong is a companion to it. You don't have to have read Daring Greatly, but Rising Strong is essentially about resilience and how we come back from difficult experiences. The idea being that if you're taking enough risks, as Daring Greatly would teach you to do, sometimes the risks don't go the way you want them to, mm. and you have a moment of failure, or she calls it a face down moment. Um, so when you find yourself face down, like what's the story that you're telling yourself about how you ended up there and about your ability to come back from it? How can we give ourselves better tools to deal with the inevitable? difficult things that we face in our lives. Um, and there's great information from her research, patterns that she's noticed, and also some sort of concrete recommendations and steps that you can take. And she uses acronyms, which I don't totally love, but they mm. are useful. They are useful. <laughs> um, but it's I think it's really great. This is exactly the kind of self-help that a person like me is going to read like something that's grounded in theory that's just really honest and doesn't there's no hand waving here she's like look these are the hard things in life and here is what we know from research can help you with the hard things in you life. know sort of related to that idea of um failing and if you're trying enough you're going to fail a certain percentage of the time um in naked statistics he talks about uh survivorship bias. Mm. And so one reason scientific studies that get published can be so misleading is usually the it's only the interesting results that the researchers will publish. Yes. So if some if you know like you're looking for a correlation between uh, Coca-Cola and ESP, for example, and like eh, there's no correlation, you don't there could be 19 studies that find no correlation but the one that has like the statistically um improbable outcome does get published. And like, oh my gosh, there's this correlation between Coca-Cola and ESP, but you don't see all of the failed, well, they're not really, they're successful experiments, but they've had negative, negative results, or uninteresting yeah. results. And I think there is some survivorship bias in how we sort of see the world, especially as we see people doing things that we want to do. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, look at all these people that are already doing it. But A, you don't see all the people that have failed and aren't able to do it because by definition they failed and you don't see them. And you also don't see the failures of the people that have, you know, kept trying and eventually do make it there. So there's this weird survivorship bias where you think, well, everyone, look at all those people have it figured out. That must mean if I don't have it figured out, there's something wrong with me. Well, and really you're just seeing survivorship bias in the statistics of people's outcomes. Yeah. And I think, um, um, I think that Brene Brown does really well is remind us that like when you're looking at the successful people doing the thing that you wish you could be doing, it's really easy to think like that person has it all together. Um, but nobody in any position in life has it all together. Life, I think, all, you know, life is hard for all of us in different ways. And we all struggle um, with things. And the probably the most salient thing that came out of Rising Strong for me is a thing that I am going to push against forever and ever and ever. But um, 
the you know how easy it is to become annoyed with other people who don't do the thing that you think that they should mm. do and she really challenges herself through some stories that she tells in the book but really challenges readers to to like ha- to really try to step into the other person's shoes and have empathy for the people that you interact with in the like it's easy to be like, these people are just crappy. They don't know what they're Mm. doing or they don't answer emails on time or whatever the thing is. This person can never show up on time. Um, But what if that's their best? Like what if the person like this person is doing the very best they can do and this is what their best looks like Um, and what that might mean for what they're going through. Um, That's been, I'm not very good at it, but I would like Mm. to be better at it. Uh, I just I don't know I find Brene Brown to be incredibly useful and relevant and it, like her books are among those that I recommend most widely and most frequently so I think Rising Strong is a great addition um, and if you want something lighter to read this weekend Allie Hughes has sex sometimes um, one of the unexpected delights of my reading year so far um, this is about uh, it opens with a young woman who's she's 31 she's a professor of feminist economics at Brown it's the end of the semester and a very hot student is coming to office hours to beg her for a better grade. Uh, Also, somehow she ends up telling him that her handyman or her handyman calls while they're meeting and he's not going to show up again, but she really needs to get stuff done around her house in time for the weekend for a surprise for her kid. The hot student offers to help. Since the semester's over and he is leaving the school, he's no longer a student of hers and they have an affair. Uh, for the weekend. It's just like one hot house Stella got her groove back steamy weekend. Uh, And then a decade goes by. They never see each other. Uh, It turns out that he has become a famous actor going under a different name. Allie has no idea because she doesn't internet. uh, So she has no idea who he is. And her child, who was 10 years old in the first part of the story, is now 20 and is dating the famous actor and brings him home for dinner one night. And Allie recognizes him and he recognizes her. And so now like her daughter is dating this guy that she had an affair with a decade ago and still has uh, all kinds of feelings for. And the story moves back and forth between uh, showing us the affair weekend from 10 years ago and showing us the present day where Allie and the actor and Allie's daughter are all sort of in this triangulated figuring out of their complicated relationships. And there are some crazy little side stories to it as well. Um, Jules, Jules Milan is the author and she wrote previously for um, for TV, for Party of Five and The West Wing. Mm. Um, and you can see that all over the book. Like It's just perfectly paced. Um, the episodes between the chapters take place in exactly the amount of time that they should. And it's easy to picture the book being a movie, but it doesn't have that that feeling that you get sometimes where you read a book of like the author wrote this with the intention of making it a movie. Sometimes books suffer for that. And Allie Hughes has sex. Sometimes it does not. Um, also, you get to leave a book out on your counter that has the word sex on the cover and then people come over and they look at it and you have to explain, which I think is always kind of fun. And if you think that makes you uncomfortable, I've got this Scandinavian kids book. You can check out. <laughs> I think that's our show. I think that's our show. Uh, so, oh, one last thing. Um, you've got what day is today? The 28th. You've got three more days. If you want to like, $20 off your Book Riot Live ticket, bookwritelive.com, um, you get 20 bucks off using offered code wheelhouse, one word. I've got a lot, a lot of great stuff. You can see all the panelists and lineups there. Um, we're going to be a live version of this show. All the podcasts are going to have live versions. A whole bunch of fun things going there. I encourage you to go check them out. You can email us as always. Some people recently have like, they haven't 
kind of they, they leave a comment or on Twitter, like, I don't know how to get in contact with you, please do use the email address, podcast at bookriot.com. Um, that's the easiest way. It's also a longer form way we can get yeah, back to if you. If you need more than 140 characters to yeah. say a thing, that's the best way. Um, but you can find show notes to this and previous episodes of the Book Riot Podcast at bookriot.com slash podcast. Uh, we're going to be back next week with another show. As It'll always. It'll be September. Oh, uh, thank goodness. The, 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 the publishing machines really get rolling. Um, if you do want to check out Liberty and Rebecca's show, the first week of September would be a great time to get on board because there's all kinds of new books coming out. Really like the next, what is it, through end of October? Yeah, it's kind of the, end of October, the, the, early the, November. Right. Um, is going to be the the high season for fall books, really the high season of the year. Mm-hmm. Like you get oh, a, yeah. a little echo bump in early January and then again in, in April and May. But this is the the Christmas season for book lovers, even though Christmas doesn't come later. But this is when all the books come out for the season. Go check out all the books. Um, you can find it on iTunes. You can find it at uh, on the under the podcast tab on bookriot.com. Thank you as always so much for listening. Rebecca, have a good week, huh? Thank you. You too. Mm-hmm.